Welcome to the 15th episode of the What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan podcast. As always, this podcast is based on the newsletter, What Happened Last Week in Kurdistan. And if you go to our Instagram, whlw Kurdistan, you can find links to the newsletter, as well as our Patreon, if you'd like to support us on there. Today's episode is divided into two parts. The first part is news from all parts of Kurdistan. And the second part is an interview with Lara Fatah from the Seed Foundation. Without further ado, let's get into it. And as always, today we're starting with Rojava. So it's been a hectic week in Syria uh, this week as Turkish and Syrian forces went back and forth, attacking each other, annihilating each other. And in a week of brutal killings, bombardments, higher refugee numbers and innocent children dying, Turkey just had to go that extra mile. They had to show themselves to just be the... Ah, okay, here's what they did, right? So Assad and Russia attack Turkish forces and their allied jihadist forces, okay? This is basically the same people who were in ISIS, just, you know, with a different uniform, now they're allied with Turkey, which, you know, they were the whole time, but whatever. They are attacked by Russia and Assad. What Turkey does in retaliation to show that they are forced to be reckoned with, what do they do? They bombard Kurdish regions in Syria and Iraq. Help me find the logic here. Help me find the logic here. What is the logic here? So you get attacked by party A and you retaliate against party B. Now this is making no sense to me. Why? I don't know. But then again, Turkey doesn't really need a good reason to attack Kurds. Beyond that, what they were doing is just, just, oh, it's so it's so evil, man. It's so evil. They started using refugees. Refugees they're holding as a blackmail card against the West. What they said was, and they've done this before, mind you. What they said was, the West help us against Syria, against Assad, and against the Russians. Otherwise, we're going to let all these refugees come to Europe. And obviously, this um, didn't really get them any sympathy from the West or from Russia, you know? The West is not really looking at Erdogan as someone that can be trusted anymore, which is, thank God, we've been saying it for a long time. And Russia does what they, they do. They do what they do. They, they want to do what they want to do. And they will do what they want to do. Okay? So Turkey is kind of in a lot of problems right now. They're in a lot of problems. And they're, they keep barking their, their threats, but we all know they can't do anything. You know, maybe they can you know, we're a testament to the fact that they can. They, they're bombarding Kurds. And in these bombardments, civilians died on both the Syrian side of Kurdistan and the Iraqi side of Kurdistan. Help me understand this logic, Turkey. Jesus. I'm going to move on now to uh, Bashur, to South Kurdistan, Iraq. Coronavirus panic throughout Kurdistan as cases confirmed. So just one month ago, the coronavirus outbreak was just something that people watched on TV in Kurdistan. Sadly, however, the fear is becoming, you know, it's becoming more real. It's becoming a real threat now, as in neighboring Iran, there's a large outbreak and it's kind of causing panic in the Kurdistan region. And it wasn't long before cases were being officially registered in Kurdistan, as in, Kerk in Kerkuk, a family of four, a Turkish, sorry, a Shia Turkmen family had caught the virus while they were on tour in Qum. Now, Qum is one of the holiest shrines for Shias. It's the second holiest shrine for Shias after Nejev. And 
it has an annual influx of religious pilgrims visiting the area. And through this pilgrimage, through this large congregation of people, this large group of people coming together while there's a virus outbreak, you know, this family sadly caught the virus. And now they're in Kirkuk, and I believe they're being quarantined. The other issue is that even with Kurdistan region blocking all entries and quarantining, quarantining anyone who came from Iran, people are still illegally smuggling themselves into the KRG, into the Kurdish borders of the KRG. Now, the KRG had to make a uh, statement warning locals to not go near anyone that has illegally entered from Iran. Here's the thing. Why would you do that? All right. People really need to understand, and the media is not helping with this, by the way, but people really need to understand that the coronavirus, yes, it's a dangerous virus. Yes, it has killed people, but there are more dangerous viruses in the world, and they've been there for a long time, and we are not giving it this kind of attention. This is getting a lot of attention for the wrong reasons. People should be informed about the coronavirus. The coronavirus is dangerous, yes, but it's not the deadliest we've come across, okay? This is not the end-all virus. This is not the doomsday virus. It isn't. The fatality rate for the coronavirus, in theory, is about 2%. In practice, it's been 3.8, I believe. So that means even if you contract the virus, even if you get the disease, there's a 90% chance that you survive. And if you're healthy, and if you are quarantined, and you get the right kind of medical attention, there's an even higher chance that you survive. So please, people, please, don't smuggle yourselves and avoid quarantine. You know, don't illegally cross and avoid quarantine. Quarantine, they're not going to quarantine you. They're not going to put you in a room and leave you to die. That's not what's happening. They're going to quarantine you so you don't give the disease to other people. And that's the thing. It's very selfish to illegally come across and put other people's lives in danger. Okay, so please, people need to stop doing that. And the media really needs to start informing people about what to do. And to KRG's credit, they have taken a lot of precautions. Uh, they've been closing down public and crowded areas, including schools, universities, restaurants, cafes, gyms, etc. And this has been very positive. Now, I was talking to someone earlier about this, and I was saying, you know, it's not very often that the KRG does something that I, as a Kurd, can be like, that's my government, I'm proud of what they're doing. But they're doing that right now. And I am so proud. I am so happy. Okay, this doesn't happen often, but they've been doing such a fantastic job. There was another uh, there was another registry of the coronavirus in Kurdistan, the Simon Slimani, a family of four who had come back from Iran, had contracted the virus, but they've been quarantined and they're getting medical attention. That is the right way to do things. They've been KRG has been very professional about this. They understand there are weaknesses within the KRG medical system. They understand that we are not as capable as some of the other countries in the West, for example, to deal with a large, with a large, uh, with a large outbreak. So they're taking all precautions, and this is really great. They're taking all these precautions, and they're making sure these weaknesses are not exposed. They're doing a great job, and honestly, as a Kurd, this is a, uh, it's a rare, rare occurrence of pride in a Kurdish government. So well done to them. They have been doing such a fantastic job. I'm going to move on now from that to the new Iraqi government, which doesn't seem to have the blessings of the Kurds and the Sunnis. So the new Iraqi government is set to await approval from parliament 
in order to begin the interim reign of the new government until an early election is called. So, as you guys know, there has been a lot of protesting in Iraq uh, against the government, against Iranian uh, intervention in Iraqi affairs. And this led to the prime minister resigning from his position and a lot of other uh, government officials just being ousted. People did not want them anymore. And the, you know, the protest kind of, the protesters in some ways got what they wanted. They removed some of the people who were harming Iraq. So now they're kind of, the government is trying to keep the country running and they have in place an interim government until an election is called. Now, it has been made clear that both Kurds and Sunnis are not happy with the new prime minister's ministry selection, as well as lack of resolve for ongoing issues with each group. Now, I can talk uh, for the Kurds uh, some of the issues that is major is an issue like Article 140. Now, Article 140 is... Oh my God, this article, this the issue of Article 140, I've been hearing it ever since I was a kid, ever since I knew what language was and the Kurdish language was and I could understand and, you know, see what's going on. This article, this problem has been ongoing. I'll tell you what it is. So Article 140 in Kurdish, Madde being article, an Arabic term, but still, Madde Saltutil, Article 140, basically tries to solve the problem of the disputed areas. So in the 80s and early 90s, uh, a lot of Kurdish areas were Arabized. They were Arabized by Saddam Hussein in an effort to decrease Kurdish population in certain areas and, you know, weaken their claim to these areas. One of these areas is the city of Kirkuk. Now, Kirkuk was heavily Arabized. There's actually a term for the people, for the Arabs who came from the south to Kirkuk, and the term for them is Dahazari. Dahazari means those of 10,000. Da meaning 10, Hazar meaning 1,000. So they were called that because the government offered them 10,000 dinars to come and settle in Kirkuk and restart their life there. What Article 140 does is it accounts for those people, and having accounted for those people creates a referendum, and, that, and the referendum decides whether those areas, those disputed areas, uh, should be under the jurisdiction of Baghdad or the jurisdiction of Holir. So basically, it's part of Iraq or it's part of Iraqi Kurdistan. Okay, that issue uh, with the with the proposal of a new constitution being written, that issue has risen again. Kurds don't want a new constitution to be written without accounting for Article One Forty, but of course, the people in Baghdad have different plans. Another problem is the future of the Peshmerga. The Peshmerga in Kurdistan, you know, they're, they're, they're the people who liberated Kurdistan in such a large way. And Muqtada Sadr, a religious scholar, a religious leader, called for the dis, dismembering of the Peshmerga and that they should be, that, that, that they're illegal because they're a militia. Now, the Peshmerga are a constitutional force. They are an official force. So, you know, what Muqtada Sadr was saying doesn't make any sense. But again, that's an issue that the prime minister should be dealing with. The prime minister should be handling before a new government and whatever elections or whatever constitution is written. Now, another issue is the fact that, and we talked about this last week as well, the Kurdish government wants a say in the in what 
which ministers are appointed to the cabinet, to the new cabinet. And the prime minister wants to make his own selections without really allowing for foreign, and when I say foreign, without allowing for other interferences. So uh, on this issue, the prime minister has supposedly selected ministries that are independent, you know, ministers that are independent rather than party affiliated. And that sounds good, right? Well, maybe. You see, the ministers that have been chosen, especially on the Kurdish side, while not being affiliated with the PUK or the KDP, they haven't been entirely independent, with one of the ministers being a former MP, uh, a former MP candidate for the Change Party. So that's the Parti Goran, the Change Party, while another having close affiliations with Dr. Barham Saleh and his former party, Dr. Barham Saleh. Uh, now being with the PUK, and also uh, being the Iraqi president. Only the third minister, who was uh, Saddam's first judge, though the judge that was put in charge of Saddam's case, Saddam Hussein's case, uh, Judge Razgar, seems to be the real independent here. However, however, having said all that, it's also worth noting that based on the decisions made, the prime minister may not have enough votes in the parliament to form the new government. And for what it's worth, it's been, it doesn't seem like either party here has the best intentions, neither the prime minister or the established cabinet. They don't seem to have the best intentions, and they're basing their actions on more personal and party gain rather than the nations, which is unfortunate. Anyways, that is all the news for... Bashur this week. Next up is Rojhalat, East Kurdistan, Iran. Now, on to Rojhalat, and remember what I just said a little bit ago about how proud I am of the Kurdish governments of how they've dealt with the coronavirus? Well, if you're Persian or Iranian, I'm sorry, but you can't say the same thing, because the way the Iranian government has dealt with the coronavirus is irresponsible to say the least. So holy pilgrims are seen licking bars in mosques in defiance of the virus with Iran refusing to quarantine the place. Make me... Listen, I understand. Faith is a strong thing and it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful to believe in something so wholeheartedly. It's a beautiful thing. I always say that. Faith is a beautiful thing. But... There's an outbreak of a virus, okay? God said, I help those who help themselves. I don't know if that, that was the God of Christianity or Islam. Now it's the same God, but you know what I mean. Uh, I don't know which religion it was where he says that. But he says, I help those who help themselves. Right? God tells you that. And you have faith in that God. And what you do with the coronavirus being you know, rapidly spreading, you go and lick the bars on a holy mosque? Make me understand. This is... That's one thing. That's on the individual. The individual should not be doing... The individual should not be going on these pilgrims while there's an outbreak, okay? In the Kurdistan region of Iraq, there's talks of... Uh, so funerals are banned. Weddings are banned. Uh, you know, any congregation of large numbers of people in, is in a large way banned so that the virus doesn't spread. That is the responsible thing to do. Iran is not doing that. 
Why? I don't understand. Even Saudi, Saudi, which is just as religious as Iran, they're being more responsible with the cities of Mecca and Medina, the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And, you know, with what's happening and the terrible way that the Iranian government is dealing with the coronavirus, the virus has now spread in a large way in the country. And that includes the Kurdish regions, with cases being confirmed at both Sina and Kirmashan. Here's one of the most terrible things about having a country that's divided between four borders. I don't say this often, but the KRG government, the Kurdistan government of uh, South Kurdistan, uh, of Iraqi Kurdistan, they've been doing such a fantastic job. I keep repeating it, but they deserve the credit. They've been doing such a fantastic job. If they were put in charge of Rojhalat regarding this thing, regarding the coronavirus, we would have seen a lot less cases. And it's really just, it's so frustrating to see your brothers and sisters across the border not being given the protection they deserve. And, you know, that goes for the Persians as well. It goes for the Arabs as well. It goes for the Turks as well. Individuals deserve human rights and individuals deserve the protection of their governments when there is such a thing as the coronavirus. And it's so frustrating to see that we have the facilities, or at least we have the common sense to protect against this, and we're not able to lend a hand across the border. But yeah, cases confirmed in Sina and Kirmashan, um, and with the with the large embargo in Iran and the and the many sanctions on Iran, it's very difficult for people to get to pay for the medications they need because medications are you know getting out of control in Iran. It's so expensive because nothing's coming in. I hope I hope something good happens soon. I don't know what else to say. I hope something good happens soon. Anyways, now we're going to move on to Bakur, North Kurdistan, Turkey. So in Bakur this week, the historic town of Hasankeyf sinks. Now this has been a matter of worry for a long time. And if you... Here's the thing. A, few, a while back I tweeted something. I posted something on Twitter uh, saying that I no longer have faith in whatever moral compass the West claims to have. And stories like this are why I don't have faith in that moral compass that the West possesses. Okay? Turkey sinks the historic town of Hasankeyf, which held civilization aging back to 12,000 years. 12,000 years, the city. That's how old it is. This is a relic. This is, a, this is proof of humanity. This city. This is how we look back and see how long we've been here. Hassan Cave is history. The whole city is history. And Turkey sank it. Why? To build a dam. The government built a dam in the, in the area which destroyed the ancient Kurdish town and with it the artifacts, caves, and buildings. It's unfortunate and it is disgusting that Turkey can get away with everything that it does. The NATO ally... NATO ally. The NATO ally has been responsible for ethnic cleansing, destruction of artifacts, killing civilians, invasions of countries, and so much more. And the West is just like, you know what, you, you serve an important strategic purpose for us. So you can do what you want, you know, you can do what you want. Just make sure that the media doesn't get hold of it. But now the media did get hold of it. 
We've been talking about this for so long. And still, this is the result. Hassan Cave is underwater. Now, I saw a video of, uh, of a young man in a boat looking at Hassan Cave and, and waving goodbye, and it was heartbreaking. How is, how is, how is this fair, man? How is this fair? It's not. It's absolutely not. But hey, that's politics. 12,000 years just gone down the drain. And Turkey is allowed to do whatever it wants. This is why I do not trust the West's moral compass. Because it's immoral. Now, beyond the fact that the city, the historic city, was destroyed and sank underwater, hundreds of people, thousands of people lost their homes. And Turkey, of course, is not, you know, giving them anything in return. They just have to pack up and leave. Oh, well, as long as the West have their strategic partner. That is all the news we have for you this week. Next up is an interview with Lara Fatah from the Seed Foundation. With me on the podcast this week is Lara Fatah from the Seed Organization. Lara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So we're going to get directly into the questions because I have quite a bunch of them for, for you to answer for me if you can. Okay. Um, so starting off, what is SEED? What is the SEED organization? Well, SEED Foundation is a development NGO and we're based in Erbil, but we work in Dohok and Slemani as well. Okay. And why was it started? SEED was co-founded in 2014 by uh, Sherry Kram Talabani and Tanya Gilichelani, and it was founded to promote social, educational, and economic development, hence the name SEED. But um, as the the ISIS crisis unfolded over that summer, there was a need to focus more directly on crisis response project, but still within the same ethos of focusing on educational and economic development. Mm, So I've I've looked on the website, I've looked at SEED's uh, social media, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things that uh, you're doing but what is the main mission statement? What is the main thing that uh, is driving the foundation forward? So at SEED, our mission is to protect, empower, and support the recovery of survivors of violence and others at risk. And we're committed to delivering quality and holistic approaches. We combine a mix of international expertise and local know-how so that we achieve the best results possible for our clients and wider Kurdistan and Iraq. Um, We do this working through four main areas. Uh, One is through delivering comprehensive uh, service delivery of mental health and psychosocial support services. This includes doing case management, offering mental health support, legal services, as well as psychosocial support activities. Um, The second way we do this is by strengthening capacity of service providers through education, training and capacity building programs. And that can be ourselves as NGO service providers. And we also work with some government institutions as well, training them and other NGOs. Um, The third way we do this is we promote policy and social change to strengthen the rights of and protections for vulnerable groups and individuals. 
And then the fourth way we're working is for the protection and recovery of survivors of trafficking. Um, and one of the ways we do this is uh, through our shelter for victims of trafficking. Yeah, we work on a, a broad variety of things and yeah, we work hard to make a difference. Yeah, it's really a lot to unpack, but I want to I wanna know, uh, you mentioned programs. What kind of programs does SEED work on? Our programs tend to work across those four areas that I mentioned. Some of them will work on three of them. So they might do service delivery. They might do strengthening of capacity. There may be a policy uh, aspect to it, or some of them might be focused just on training. So it depends on the, the different grants we have. But, um, for example, one of our biggest uh, programs uh, is by PRM, and a lot of our service delivery side of that program is up in De Hawk, uh, doing case management services, providing mental health support. Um, we do psychosocial support uh, group activities in the camps, um, and these can have a variety of uh, educational aspects to them, uh, well-being aspects, mental health aspects to them. So it depends on the program, and we do it in those ways. Now, I was looking at, like I said earlier, I was looking at the mm -hmm. social media. And there was one video that really, uh, you know, grabbed my attention. It was a video produced for the campaign of stopping sexual exploitation. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the video, there were two young men and they were having, you know, a conversation, a confrontation, whatever you want to call it. Uh, one of them was trying to alter a girl's photo for, you know, whether it was for to make a joke of her or to have some kind of revenge on her mm -hmm. and the other was arguing against that i want to know like these kind of situations where a girl's photo is altered for whatever purposes you know uh how prevalent is this how prevalent is this kind of exploitation in kurdistan well i'll start but just by telling you a little bit about the campaign um which mm -hmm. we've actually been working on since last year and the video you mentioned is actually one of three videos we've released so far so uh, and they each look at a slightly different aspect. So the campaign is looking at sexual exploitation, harassment and abuse. Um, two of the videos focus on sexual exploitation. And the third one we released recently is on harass sexual harassment. Um, it is prevalent in society. We see it. Our case managers deal with these cases on a regular basis. Um, it's, it is difficult to get accurate data because it's a, something that's very underreported um, because of the stigma that's attached to it. You know, there's a lot of victim shaming in Kurdistan, so it often makes it very, very hard for people who have suffered sexual exploitation, harassment or abuse to actually come forward and report the issue. But we know from our work and from the cases we work on that it, it's an, it is a big issue and, and it affects all uh, stratas of Kurdish society. It's not just rich people, it's not just poor people, it affects everybody and across all locations. No, and, and I'm sure, I mean, uh, going back to my own teenagers when I was in Kurdistan, like I, I would always hear about stories like that. Mm. And sometimes you would hear some of the terrible, terrible ramifications that these things would have for the young women who were victims of it. What are, you know, you being in a position of, you know, uh, being more expert about it than I am, what are some of the main ramifications to such a thing? I mean, if we talk about altering and a person's photo and sharing it, there's really two sets of ramifications, those on the victims and those on the person who's done this, the perpetrator. So I'll start with the victim. You know, it could really cause social embarrassment and stigmatization and all, 
most of the victims tend to be female, but that's not to say there aren't male victims of this as well. So I, I don't want to say that all the victims are, are women, but um, they often get stigmatized as a bad or a moral person that, you know, the blame is automatically put on the girl, even though she hasn't done anything. Her photo has been manipulated, but it's because, you know, people might say, well, and she always dresses like that. So what's the difference? It's just a fake photo. It doesn't matter. But so aside from just the embarrassment and the stigmatization, her family very may very well may punish her. They may isolate her from her friends. They may restrict access to the phone, her phone or the internet. They may verbally and physically abuse her. She may have restriction on her movements, might not be allowed to go to school. And in the very worst case scenarios in these type of uh, things, honor killings happen. And there, uh, there is no honor in that type of killing, but uh, that's how everybody refers to them. But um, that's the worst case scenario for the, the victim. So, you know, what people think might be funny, uh, it's not. It has life-changing consequences. And I think what a lot of perpetrators don't realize is they are breaking the law. When you share a false, altered image, or even if you share a real image of somebody else without their consent, you're breaking the law. So... You know, and then some of them take it further. They try and extort money or sex from the victim, you know, to try and force them into doing other things. And so then you can be prosecuted under another law. You can be prosecuted under the anti-trafficking in persons law. And for sharing the photo illegally without their consent, you can be prosecuted under the Misuse of Telecommunications Act. Wow. Th that uh, last law that you, uh, that last act, sorry, that you mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, I, if I'm not wrong here, it came out a long time ago, very long time ago, before smartphones. It was about uh, people using their phones to call up other people and prank call them. And, you know, sometimes things would get nasty. Um, but, you know, it, it started out that way, but now it's kind of altering. But are the laws enough? Are they sufficient to prevent such exploitations? The it's not the I'm you know with any law you can always improve it once you have a better understanding of of the crimes that are happening. But the biggest problem is the the implementation of the law. It's very difficult to have these laws implemented, um, and that's also partly due to it's people are very you know they're they're scared or shy to come forward and report these crimes because of the social stigmas and taboos that we've talked about, um, it's, a, it's a really big step for them to share what's happening to them. Um, so getting a successful prosecution isn't easy, but the law is there. And, you know, we work with organizations such as uh, DCVAL, which stands for the Directorate of Combating Violence Against Women and Families. It's a directorate uh, belonging to the KRG, And they're working on these uh, cases. Um, they're working very hard. They're having training from us and from other NGOs to be more aware of the issues and how to implement the, the laws on this. They, they work very hard. They have, a, they have a hotline, which we've also uh, highlighted in the, the videos, 119, which people can call for free and in confidence to report the crimes if they want to. Are there any cases that we can talk about? Any stories of such incidents? I mean, I can't give you, you know, direct details about individual cases because obviously we have to be careful and protect our client's identity. But I, I can give you some examples of the type of cases 
uh, we've had. We've had cases where there's there's one type of scenario which is becoming common, which uh, we refer to as the lover boy scenario, where often a normally a girl is tricked into a relationship. They think they're having a genuine relationship with the, the man in question. And perhaps they go out with them or perhaps they send some photos, uh, not necessarily anything risque, but they could be intimate photos. And then it turns out that it's not a genuine relationship. And this man, this perpetrator, um, then turns around and tries to use these photos to either get money out of the girl or to extort sexual favors from her. Um, you know, he'll threaten, I'm going to show these to your father, to your brothers, I'm going to put them on Facebook. And we have clients who have, who have, you know, given all their money to these people to stop them from, to try in the, in the hope that they won't share their photos online or with their families. Or the other uh, type of one case we've had is where uh, this guy said, you know, I want to marry you, but I can't, I don't have money, you know, we have to find a way to get money. And so the, the girl took money from her parents thinking that she was getting married. Um, and of course he, he took the money and he ran. So this happens and it, it, it happens widely. It's not uncommon. Um, and especially with the way victims are often shamed, if they think that somebody's going to share their photo, they will desperately try and do anything to stop that photo being shared real or fake. So yeah. yes, it, 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 sadly it's common. Wow. And, you know, in such situations, the perpetrators are really taking advantage of the culture of shaming, of the culture of yes. honor uh, to, you know, cox these girls, or these young women, or even if it's young men, to mm -hmm. do as they as they want. Now, uh, and, you know, a lot of people are really referring to that culture. They're pointing to that culture as a reason for why so much abuse happens. Does Seed work on changing things from a cultural point of view to change young people's minds to help them understand better that this shouldn't be that way or at least if something like this does happen that the victim is not the person to blame you know that's one of the aims we have behind this campaign that we're doing is to educate people on the issues and to help people to understand that it's not the victim who has done wrong. If you're doing these crimes, it's the perpetrator and the shame is on the perpetrator. It doesn't belong to the victim. They are the innocent party in this. And uh, people who have this happen to them or who are at risk of it, they need our support. You know, we as a society have a duty to change. We, we're all agents of change. We can all do something. You know, we can all open our eyes. We can listen to the issues. If we have a friend or a loved one that this happens to, you know, you don't judge them and say, well, why were you talking to that person? You, you support them, you listen to their story, you, you help them. You know, you, it's not your place to judge them. They haven't done something wrong. As a society, we need to get better at doing that. And we really want through the campaigns that people see the issue and they begin to understand that these things are illegal and it is the person doing it who is wrong, not the victim. Mm, of course. And now... You know, are you seeing more young people being attracted to this campaign? Are you seeing more young people trying to be involved uh, with this uh, movement to break those uh, barriers of shame and honor when people are exploited? We've noticed as the campaigns built that with each video we've released and with the messaging that more people are interacting with the videos, sharing them, 
And also as part of the campaign, we have been doing outreach universe, uh, outreach work. We've been to some universities to do seminars on the issue. We've been doing some uh, smaller group works in the, in the community. And we have had a very positive reaction. Like people know it's happening. They're aware of it. They, they've heard of these things happening in their community to other people. And they, they know it's an issue. And I think it's starting the conversation that's important. Um, because then when you when it no longer becomes shameful to talk about it, you break that taboo of talking about the issue. It gives people who are at risk or who've had it happen to them, it, it makes it a little bit easier for them to come forward when they know there are people who won't judge them and will support them. And, you know, in the past few years, we've really been seeing more and more stories, which is uh, a testament to the progress that uh, or foundations like SEED are creating. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more infamous cases was the case of Sewa Qadr, uh, the, the young woman who was burnt alive with her three children in Chamsamal. Now, uh, from what I understand from the story is that she had gone to her family multiple times about the abusive husband who had uh, who was the perpetrator behind these uh, behind the fire that killed the family. And she had gone to her own family uh, multiple times, but the family didn't want to help because they didn't want her getting a divorce and mm-hmm. besmirching that family honor. How can we change that? How can we make sure that women like, like Sewa aren't ignored or aren't shunned for the sake of, mm-hmm. you know, for the sake of honor? I mean, I can't speak to the specifics of that particular case, but we as an NGO and others can work to raise awareness on these issues, which we are we are trying to do with this campaign. And we will slowly help to change attitudes so that people begin to understand and see that shame does not rest with the victim. The shame belongs to the perpetrator. And then it's twofold. We can also work with the government to strengthen laws and policies that govern domestic issues. For instance, we're working with DC Val, the Department for Combating Violence Against Women, on amendments to the domestic violence law, which will improve things like the mediation process for those who do start divorce proceedings. We also have to look at what alternatives are there for women in this situation where they don't have supportive families. You know, if there's not another safe option for shelter, for financial means to support herself and her children, then we as society, uh, we're, we're failing to support that woman. You know, if her family won't support her, we have to provide an alternative means so that she has an option to leave if she wants to. She doesn't feel obliged to stay in the situation. And that's really one of the main issues, isn't it? Like a lot of times beyond the family, there really, there really isn't much aid, uh, you know, being the kind of culture that we have that we have in Kurdistan, being a collective kind of culture where family depends on family. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I also want to br- briefly talk about some of the psychological aspect of the work you do. Now, a mm-hmm. uh, few, I think it was last week, I posted a tweet and I, I was saying that, uh, you know, constantly talking about tragedy, constantly, constantly listening to tragic stories about Kurdistan or about other places in the Middle East, it really takes a toll on you. And I think mm-hmm. it was uh, Chris Johannes uh, from the Seed Org Foundation. Yes. Uh, he replied with a story about, uh, I believe it's called vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of touch upon that and see how the psychological aspect beyond everything else that we talked about plays a role in all of this. 
Do you mean in terms of our staff or the, our clients? Uh, both the staff and the clients. Okay, so a, lo a lot of the clients that we deal with are suffering from uh, mental traumas, um, whether they've been victims of violence or psychological abuse. Um, and we do offer comprehensive mental health support. We have uh, group work. We have individual sessions. We work with an individual in themselves. We look at their wider situation. It may be that in order to support their mental health in a good way, we also have to do some work with their family so that they can meet in the middle and they can provide the right type of support to the person who's suffering um, so they don't sort of stop their journey, as it were. Um, we do group psychosocial support activities. Uh, we do a lot of those in the camps and in communities. And then for our staff, we recognize that, you know, they're dealing with clients who have suffered gross traumas. And that, as you said, is, uh, is sort of you can transfer trauma in that sense. So we're very conscious of that. And we have a well-being program at SEED where we, we you know, give our staff the chance to do things like meditation. We have group activities. Uh, there is uh, mental health support there if they feel they would like to talk to somebody as well um, we are conscious of the, the load on them and we we monitor that and we support our staff with well-being activities it is really important when you work in you do this type of work you need to have that support in place and we're lucky at seed that we're given it well you're doing a fantastic job uh mm -hmm. i i also want to kind of refer back to the culture once more, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in our culture, it seems that getting psychological aid has a certain stigma attached to it. People either aren't willing to do it because of that stigma or they're not willing to admit to doing it because of that stigma. Is that something that you, you come across when dealing with clients? I mean, I'm personally not a mental health support worker, so I, I can only speak in very general terms. But yes, in this society, there is a unfortunately there is a stigma um, it is changing it is better people are open to receiving help um, I think a lot depends on how you explain what the processes are to them uh, how you build trust one of the things we do is we work in the communities we build trust they see our work they see our staff they learn to trust us so maybe people who aren't as receptive to getting help see other people benefiting from the help, and then they also engage in the process. But unfortunately, in Kurdish society and many other societies, um, there is sadly a stigma attached to mental health, and it really shouldn't be the case. People should feel, um, should be allowed to seek treatment freely and should feel comfortable to talk about their mental health. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I was reading a book not too long ago, and one of the things that are really highlighted, you know, multiple times was the fact that mental uh, mental injuries or psychological injuries or psychological scars are in a, are similar to physical injuries. You know, you can't really go on and get get up and do the same old thing after you've had you've gone through a trauma because you need to give yourself yourself time to heal and give yourself uh, the right tools to heal. Mm -hmm. um, are there any any cases that I know perhaps you have to uh, be confidential about and you can't speak to any details, but are there any cases that you can mention where psychological aid has rehabilitated a person after experiencing traumatic events? 
Yes, um, we have a lot of successful cases. I mean, in the last year alone, we've given mental health support to over 200 clients. And it's not just a, a sort of short term thing where we, we see them once or twice and that's it there. You know, they're given consistent support over six to, to 12 months. Um, and also we've given social psychosocial support uh, group activities to over 600 people in the last year. Uh, one of the, the type of cases we've we've come across that I can tell you about is say perhaps where we've got children who have experienced a trauma and they've internalized it and they, they can't reintegrate with their families. Um, perhaps they have uh, perhaps they either withdraw, they don't speak, or they have violent tendencies, or they, they have they, they have problems reintegrating with their families. And then also you have to remember that perhaps the family also has suffered a trauma and they don't quite know how to support the child to help them reintegrate with the, the family. So what we do in those cases is we work with the child as an individual to support their mental health and give them techniques with which they can cope. Uh, and then also with the wider family, to educate them about what the child is going through, to look and assess if they have a trauma that they also need to cope with and to give them uh, methods that they can use with the child so that eventually the child reintegrates and and overcomes the problem, whether it's a lack of speaking or uh, violence uh, in groups or or that. And we've had successful cases where that. We, We had one family who... The child was suffering so much that the the family didn't feel they could take the child out with them. And so obviously it was affecting the family's social standing. They couldn't go and visit other relatives. They couldn't go to this. They couldn't do this and that um, because they felt they had to keep their child indoors because they they were, in their eyes, the child was acting up. But working with the child and the family... Um, we were able to help them so that now the the child has somewhat recovered, they behave better, um, they, they have coping mechanisms for when they, they feel anxiety and the family have back reintegrated back into the community and feel they can go out and take their child out with them again. So we have a lot of cases like that. So yes, the way at SEED we work with our mental health uh, clients is that we don't just look at them as a single being with a single issue we take a much wider 360 approach we assess uh, their whether it's an issue within their family whether we can support them as a whole family as well whether there's other physical matters that are physical health matters that are impacting them as well so we look at them as a as a whole person not just an issue and so we we treat them in a holistic manner to get the best results we can So this is all really, really positive. And it's really hopeful to see that this kind of work that is so necessary to Kurdish society is being done in Kurdish society. And we are seeing progress. Yes, we are. You know, there's a lot of work still to do, but I've worked on and off in Kurdistan for over 10 years. And I see a huge change now from when I first started working here. Um, And I, I, I see the engagement with what we're doing. And it really does give me hope that uh, continue change and improvement can happen because we, we all have that on us as a society. We all have a role to play and we can all make a difference. Of course. And you are playing a very big role in making that difference. So thank you for the work that you do. And thanks, uh, thank you to the Seed Foundation for the work that they do, which is so, so, like I said, necessary to Kurdish society. 
And thank you for coming on the podcast and answering all my questions. No, thank you very much for inviting us and giving me the chance to speak. My pleasure. Before I end the podcast this week, I just want to say for everyone who might be suffering with any kinds of problems, mental health problems, psychological problems, problems at home with violence, with conflict, I know in our culture there's a stigma about reaching out for help, but please don't hesitate to do that. You will live a better life, you will be a happier person, and you will be given the tools to deal with those problems. So. If you are someone who is in such a position, please don't hesitate to reach out for help. As you heard from the interview, foundations like SEED are doing a wonderful job and nobody should be deprived of mental health help or any other kind of help if they need it. That was all for the podcast this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview and I hope you found the news useful. If you'd like to follow us, you can go to our Instagram, whlw Kurdistan, And from there, you can find links to the newsletter, as well as our Patreon, if you'd like to support us on there. As we are a fully independent newsletter and podcast, any kind of help would be appreciated. Thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, I am Gilles Chouani, and I hope you all have a great week.